Here's a little fun fact. Did you know that for over five years, I taught thousands of people at hundreds of different events, both in person and online, how to grow their businesses. And I did this for Google. And now I want to do it for you. I'm offering up some special complimentary coaching opportunities for a few lucky wise squirrels. Visit wisequirrels.com slash coaching. Welcome to Wise Squirrels, the podcast for late diagnosed adults with ADHD. I'm your host, Dave Delaney. And today I'm speaking with Peter Shankman, a serial entrepreneur and the brilliant mind behind Help a Reporter Out, or HARO. Now, Peter has authored numerous best-selling business books on customer service and public relations, delving into the secrets of success. But notably, he penned a great book called Faster Than Normal, Turbocharge Your Focus, Productivity, and Success with the Secrets of the ADHD Brain which inspired a podcast by the same name. But Peter's latest creation ventures into a different realm. It's a children's book titled The Boy with a Faster Brain. You see, Peter was diagnosed with ADHD in his mid-30s, and now at 50, he's on a mission to show kids that they aren't broken, but rather brilliant, and he wants to prevent them from spending the next three decades of their lives trying to prove that they're broken. Today, we'll be diving into various intriguing topics with Peter. We'll explore the flaws in the education system and how classrooms are designed, uncovering the challenges faced by children. We'll also discuss the fascinating connection between getting laughs and the release of dopamine, something I know quite well. Peter will shed light on the struggles of socially awkward kids who talk excessively to prove they aren't broken and how that affects our adult life. I also know a thing or two about that. We'll delve into the reasons why ADHD is commonly found among entrepreneurs and the importance of finding people who excel in the areas where we fall short. And we'll chat about the nuances of ADHD, and he'll share valuable insights on navigating life, such as the liberating act of not caring what others think, and the moment when you should decide that an idea isn't working anymore. We'll also explore the concept of emotional return on investment, how to enjoy what you're doing, and blur the line between work and fun. We'll hear about Peter's brainchild, Help a Reporter Out, and discover the significance of implementing procedures to manage your time and reduce the number of choices you have to make. Knowing oneself and playing the tape forward will be key topics as we explore visualizing the outcomes and consequences of our choices. Now, we're going to touch upon the fine line between ADHD and addiction and how the people we surround ourselves with can either uplift us or they can bring us down. Plus, we'll uncover some practical tips like bringing your laptop when you know you'll have some downtime and handling regrets from your pre-diagnosed life. To connect with Peter Shankman, you can find him on social media, except Twitter, at Peter Shankman, or simply reach out to him at peter at shankman.com. I'll include links to everything we talk about right here in the show notes. Let's get on with the show. 
I want to start with a quote, having ADD or ADHD makes life paradoxical. You can super focus sometimes, but also space out when you least mean to. You can radiate confidence and also feel as insecure as a cat in a kennel. You can perform at the highest level feeling incompetent as you do so. You can be loved by many, but feel as if no one really likes you. You can absolutely totally intend to do something, then forget to do it. And you can have the greatest ideas in the world, but feel as if you can't accomplish a thing. Sounds Tell, about right. Yeah. And it's actually a quote that you used in a webinar you did uh, about six or seven years ago about ADHD. Do you recall choosing that quote? Maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, that's that's Ned Hallowell's opening line from Delivered from Distraction. And, um, you know, it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's very, very... Um, Anyone with ADHD um, can recognize themselves in that quote. Um, I think for me, uh, you know, for years, it was constantly trying to figure out why I could do something and then couldn't do another thing or why I could make this, why I could start and sell million dollar companies and I couldn't remember to take out the trash, things like that. And Mm -hmm. over time, when I finally started to understand what I was about and what my brain was about, everything started to make a lot more sense. And that's where... um, uh, things started to click for me, really. It was, it was you know, not easy. Um, certainly not as a kid in school. It was terrible. I, I wasn't diagnosed until my mid-30s. Mm. Growing up, it was just uh, called sit down, you're disrupting the class disease. Right. And um, that's all I had. And so, you know, the problem is, uh, is that when you are constantly told or, or shown repeatedly as a kid that you're broken, that tends to cut very deep and that makes it much, much harder um, to ever believe that you're not. And uh, I have, you know, I'm on a mission now to show kids at an early age that they're not broken, that they're brilliant. So they don't spend the next 30 years trying to disprove that they're broken. And I totally support that mission. Um, It's, Yeah. I mean, this is something obviously close to home for me personally, because at 50, uh, I was diagnosed with ADHD. So not that long ago. And it has been quite a revelation for me. Uh, That quote obviously hits home in multiple ways for me as well. But it's been really... it's been a real wake up. My wife is a school teacher. And for years, she's been telling me, dude, (laughs) you have ADHD. And um, I finally uh, got tested. And and we came to this conclusion. And now looking back at my own past, and my mom kept all my old report cards from from when I was kindergarten through grade school, all the way up to high school. And reading, my wife and I, Heather, have been sitting back recently reading these report card comments from the teachers and just laughing our heads off. I mean, the poor people that had to put up with me. But at the same time, it's pretty it's pretty eye-opening reading these comments going, oh my God, it's so obvious. Well, what, what, I, what I'm a fan of, I, I don't know if um, I have it in front of me, but there's a, uh, um, a quote. I have a very similar report card. Mm. that I received, um, that I found in one of my parents' storage units. And um, it basically says, uh, probably very similar to what yours said, but the, the, the premise is that um, uh, Peter is um, trying to find it. It was actually for years, it was one of my, um, mm. one of my, it was my Facebook, I, I copied it and made it my Facebook background. <laughs> there it is, I found it. 
Peter accepts, here it is. Peter accepts responsibilities. Let's see. Peter accepts responsibilities and is very helpful in class. However, he shows little self-control in speech and at times doesn't follow directions. He can work independently, but has a relatively short attention span for his age. Therefore, he doesn't concentrate on his work. Peter seems to relate better with children either older or younger than himself. Um, and yeah, I mean, and this was 1980, so I was mm-hmm. eight years old. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you look at it now and, and yeah, it's uh, accurate to 100%. And so, again, that was – it was called sit down and interrupt the class. Now it is um, much more important and, and, and much more understood. You know, the problem is teaching hasn't really changed mm-hmm. in about 400 years. 400 mm-hmm. years ago, the reason that kids sit in classrooms in rows and columns today is because in the 1700s, we had one-room schoolhouses and that was – the only way to fit all the kids you had. Mm. So times have changed. Procedures somehow haven't. And Mm. so a lot of it has to come back to figuring out uh, things that we can change and and understanding that we know more about our brains now and, and not everyone works in the exact same way. Yeah, it's interesting. My kids went to Montessori school growing up. Yeah, that's well, where this report card was from. Oh, really? Interesting. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So even even without the the confines of the desks, or maybe they were doing it that way back then. Because I, I I quite I quite uh, appreciated the system for for our kids, just the creativity and and the ability to to move around some and and things like that, where it wasn't quite cookie cutter. Of course, no, it was, it in was the eighties, it might have been different. Well, it was a little different. I mean, they did give us some, some, you know, a little bit of relaxation in that regard. But mm. you know, they still had to send home those those notes that that you know every day I was getting in trouble for uh, talking out of turn or whatever. And I, you know, promised myself, promised my parents every day I'll never do it again. I'll never do it. Every day I did it because it's very, you know, you get that dopamine hit from making those jokes from cracking up. Yeah, and uh, you just want more of it. Yeah, it's interesting. It might also the the dopamine aspect and and uh, how it connects to laughter with something. That actually I heard from you or I read from you when you wrote about that because uh, that does resonate with me with my uh, interest in comedy training with, you know, and performing improv and, and teaching that and then also doing st- some stand up as well and and always being the class clown and interrupting people as soon as I hear think of something funny to interrupt them yeah. with. Uh, yeah, same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So you get that that dopamine hit. It's interesting. Well, also for me. A lot of it, and I realized this only a couple of years ago, a lot of my interrupting and sort of telling people, you know, someone will be telling a story and I'll need to interrupt and immediately share something that relates to me about that story. And what I found out is the reason I do that is, again, when you grow up for years being told that you are unable to be normal or you're not you don't fit in or you just should sit down and stop disrupting the class, whatever it is. One of the things you do almost immediately is you attempt to show everyone you meet that you're not broken, Mm. that you're not uh, as bad of a kid as everyone thinks. So, you know, so, so what winds up happening is you wind up becoming socially awkward Mm. because you don't know about timing. You don't know when to shut up. You don't know when to sit down and let other people talk because you constantly feel this need to tell people, no, no, it's, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. You, you'll like me, trust me. And so that comes again from years of teachers, parents, not, not my parents, but teachers, uh, adults telling you, hey, sit down, you're doing this wrong. 
So we really do need to sort of uh, change that dialogue for lack of better Yeah. And it's interesting too. I was listening to an interview with Henry Rollins about his diagnosis with ADHD and also as a kid, but he spoke quite, uh, now it's in a number of years old, but he spoke quite poorly about uh, the resentment he felt about being um, on medication and, and how his, his mom treated him and the system, the school system treated him. And um, yeah, I'm curious about, about the thoughts there on, you know, cause you talk a lot about, and you write a lot about how this should be treated as a superpower and how, you know, you look at creatives and how entrepreneurs like yourself and myself entrepreneurship is, is a big, uh, it's a big driver or a big, uh, outlet for, for, uh, adults with ADHD. Have you found that kind of correlations between you starting companies and, and, and having ADHD and maybe that being part of your operating system to help you do that? Yeah, absolutely. I had one job in my life. I worked for America online. They let us do whatever we wanted as long as we got the job done. Mm-hmm. So imagine my first job at a school and I'm, I'm doing these incredible things. I can work any way I want work at two in the morning, work from the Boreal Forest, whatever. And then I come back to New York after three years of AOL, and I get my second job at a um, major national daily, uh, weekly magazine. Mm-hmm. And um, all of a sudden, we have 8 a.m. meetings and 8.30 a.m. meetings and 9 a.m. check-ins and 10.45 editorial boards. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is Russia. And I lasted one week huh. before, I qu- before I quit. And that was the last job I ever had. I went on my own. And the reason I did was because I realized, okay – AOL gave me this sort of false uh, description of what the workplace was like. Um, it was a great time, but they sort of screwed me because now I assume that the workplace was like that. Turns out it's not. Mm. Um, I can't do this, um, you know, whatever this is. I can't work like this, so I'm going to go out of my own. And it's funny. I remember telling my parents that I was going to go out of my own and open a PR firm with absolutely no experience. And I said, what's the worst going to happen? When it, when it, I literally said, when it fails. Not if it fails. When it fails, <laughs> I'll go get a job. Uh, it's going to be 25 years this October and I haven't got a job yet. So. That's interesting. So, I mean, it takes a lot, of, a lot of risk and gumption to go out and do your own thing. And I know that you know, you've written about – I think you, you, read, you wrote a line that I love. Uh, people find – or excuse me, find people who are great at what you suck at. Uh, yeah. Um, t- tell me a little bit about that because, you know, even for me growing my own business, I-, I struggle and I am sort of a one man show a lot of the time. Um, tell me a little bit about the people that you've met and you connected with and how they helped you grow, let's say that PR company and whatever that evolved into. I'll take it a step further. The thing about ADHD is that we're born without, or we're born with rather a certain gene we're born with a special gene called the how hard can it be gene, mm. right? Mm-hmm. To the point where if things, you know, if we try something and it doesn't work, we simply go and try something else. And we're really good at that. And so to me, that's with the real superpower because the highway is littered with the bodies of dead, brilliant ideas that died because they never got turned into anything. Because the people who came up with them were too scared to try it or too afraid to take the risk or too freaked out to go jump and make that, you know, that attempt. And so the beauty of ADHD is that we do that all the time. And a lot of times we do fail, but we also succeed quite often. 
And that's tremendously beneficial. I mean, I started and sold Help Reporter Out within three years. And it was a, uh, I started it on an airplane. Um, it worked for two and a half years out of my apartment. And it was acquired for several million dollars. Mm. And, and, you know, what was the worst thing that could have happened? I would have tried it. It wouldn't have worked. I would have go back to doing PR. But that radically changed my life. I'm lying on my couch talking to you right now with a dog on my chest, <laughs> um, you know, as opposed to working in another co- you know, working for a company or being in an office. Or, so the beauty of ADHD is that we, we take that we find those risks to be acceptable risks. Um, I'm a licensed skydiver. Why? Because the, why take the risk and become a licensed skydiver? Because the dopamine that I get from skydiving mm. is worth the calculated risk I take of jumping out of a plane multiple times in one day. I trust my training. I trust my gear. Right? I inspect, if I thought I was going to die every time I jumped, I wouldn't jump. Yes, it's dangerous, but so is crossing the street in Manhattan. I don't get the same rush crossing the street in Manhattan. The rush I get comes from skydiving, and I know that I'm a better person when I land. Um, I, I'm a single dad, and the only time I have to work out is four in the morning. So I get up at four in the morning, and I get on my Peloton bike for two, three hours each morning mm. um, to get the workout done. And you know, again, what you're, you're going to sleep in your workout clothes? You can get up super early and work out. What's wrong with you? It's what works for me. The biggest gift that someone with ADHD can give themselves is to stop caring what other people think. And that's okay, because yeah. we are different and we, we are different. And the things we do for ourselves are different. We need to stop caring. The only people that matter, only people's opinions matter to me are my daughter, my parents, my girlfriend. It's about it. Mm-hmm. Maybe my dog, my dog's <laughs> opinion matters. But I don't care otherwise. Why do, these people aren't paying my mortgage, right? I am. Yeah. And so the things I do help me do it better. So as we take more risks and we do fail, uh, everybody does. But when you're entrepreneurial and like at what point? Because ADHD as a superpower can also help you push through on an idea, as you said, it and stick it out. Um, and hopefully to, to receive success, but at what point do you realize or have to realize or have to be told perhaps that this isn't working? At what point do you, you, you abandon the idea and move on to the next thing? I've done that too. I think, I think it comes when you get to a point where you're like, this is not fun anymore. The beauty of ADHD is that the things we do, the things that we love to do, the things we enjoy doing. Mm. are the things we're very passionate about. And as long as we continue to enjoy them, we'll continue to be passionate about them. Mm. The second we don't enjoy them is when we stop being passionate about them. And so because of that, um, I always tell people, if you're doing something, I'm not talking about doing something and, oh, it's not fun today. It's, it's, you know, it's more work than it is fun. I'm going to quit. Right. No, I'm talking about a consistent, re- less, consistent lack of return on investment, um, of, of the emotional investment you're putting into whatever you're doing. If over time you realize, hey, this isn't making me happy anymore. The thing about running Help a Reporter out is I can count on one hand the number of days in the three years I ran it, the number of days that I felt like it was more work than fun. Mm. One hand. Mm. Otherwise, it was all fun. And, and so for me, 
the, the key is if I can't tell the difference between work and fun, I'm doing the right thing. The day I do start to notice that more often than not, might be time to reevaluate. Yeah, that's a great tip. That's, that's, that's a very good tip. Because for those 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 folks listening who may be working who don't have a uh, their own entrepreneurial endeavor, that's a, you know I mean it's a good it's a good wake up call to consider you know moving on or changing careers or looking for something new. If you're talented and you're smart, you can always get another job. Yeah, but you know, missing that chance to go out on your own and do your thing is is just probably one of the worst things I can imagine. I. Uh, I tell the story when I was like six years old, I was in a camp, a day camp. And, um, they, they told all the campers one day, they said, Hey, the 4th of July parade is coming. Um, we have a float. If you want to ride the float, raise your hand. I didn't know what a float was. So I said, no. And then my parents take me to the parade. I see all my friends on the camp float. I, go, I want to do that. And I started running towards it. My dad pulls it back. He's like, no, you, you, you didn't, sign up when you were supposed to. Mm. And I, I, six years old, right? I still remember this shit. <laughs> and so it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, I will never let an opportunity pass me by. Worst case scenario, I don't do it, but I'm never going to let an opportunity pass me by. Worst case scenario, it fails, whatever. But I never want to be sitting there going, man, I wish I'd taken that opportunity. Good, solid advice there. By the way, for those listening who are not familiar can you briefly describe Help a Reporter Out? I know you've done it a million times, but just so people yeah, know what Re- we're talking about. Help a Reporter is pretty easy. It's a three times per day email that you receive for free in your inbox with anywhere from 100 to 150 queries from journalists all around the world about any topic imaginable. You scan the email. It takes about 10 seconds. If you see a reporter writing about something that you can answer, like whatever you're good at, you know, badminton, skydiving, basketball, uh, you know, archery, fishing, um, corporate takeovers, whatever. You simply reply to the journalist and you can get free press. And it's, it was an idea that I came up with and it, it blew up. I started sending out some emails to some friends. Hmm. It blew up uh, almost overnight. By the time I sold it, I was sending out 1.2 million double opt-in emails every single day (laughs) with an with an 89% open rate. So it was pretty sick. How did you come up with that idea? Um, when you're ADHD, you talk to everyone. If you're next to me on an airplane, you're in the seat next to me, unless you fake your death, I'm going to know everything about you by the time I land. <laughs> and so, cause I'm just going to let you talk. I'm fascinated by it. And so here I am, um, learning everything about you. And I also know a ton of reporters. And so these reporters are calling me. Hey, Peter, I'm doing a story on that. Who do you know? Oh yeah, call this guy. Right. And then the problem is it started getting, point where I'd get calls from reporters that I didn't know. Mm. And they'd be like, yeah, I got your name from so-and-so. I'm doing a story. I'm like, I don't know. You know, and I have to start like 12 hours later, I'd find a person that could answer the question. But it, that was my whole day. I'm like, there's got to be a better way to do this. And, and Aaron came up. That's brilliant. I, I keep hearing you bring up airplanes. And it's interesting that you've come up with great ideas on airplanes. You, you've written about, you know, liking airplanes for time to write and concentrate on stuff because, you know, traditionally at least we didn't have Wi-Fi on planes. So that helped. Um, well, we do now, but it still su- it sucks. So, you know. Yeah. I usually turn it off anyway, exactly. but I just stay with that. But, but also skydiving. I think there's this consistent thing with you about airplanes. I don't know. It's just something I've noticed. It's very possible. I mean, I, an airplane for me is a happy place. Um, 
That means I'm either going to do something that I love or I'm going somewhere to explore somewhere new. Yeah. I'm going to give a speech or I'm going to jump out of one. So, I mean, there's definitely a, a love uh, for me of that. And mm-hmm. so I think that, that, you know, maybe I'm already high on dopamine when I walk out of the plane. Uh, hence, it's an uh, easier way for me to um, do whatever I need to do. Yeah, it's interesting because as a speaker myself, I love, and and as an avid traveler as well, you know, I didn't, I ended up in Nashville because from Toronto, because I met my wife in Ireland when we lived over there and, and we, we've traveled a lot. And so it's, it, yeah, it's, it, it's interesting, but I have a similar kind of feeling about, about air travel. Uh, I haven't yeah. jumped out of a plane yet though. <laughs> Give it time. <laughs> so tell me about setting deadlines for everything you do and, and avoiding choices. Um, I've, I've found that a pretty, uh, a pretty great topic that I've read and heard you uh, speak about. So when you're ADHD, everything is exciting and everything is distracting it's mm. because of that you need to put procedures into place when you need time to prevent yourself from, liking or being distracted by everything. Um, for me, uh, a lot of that happens, you know, I'll get off the bike in the morning and I'll take a shower and I'll get dressed. And for a while I was trying to figure out what should I wear? What should I wear? And, um, my day was getting, my day was starting late, uh, because I was constantly trying to figure out what to wear. And it's not like I'm some clothes horse or whatever. Well, what would happen is I'd get into the closet and I'd see a sweater I mean, oh my God, I remember that sweater. Larry gave me that sweater. Mm. Oh God, I wonder what she's doing. I haven't spoken to her in years. I should look her up. Now it's three hours later. I'm making <laughs> the living room on Facebook and I haven't left the house. So for me, the elimination of choice is possibly the, quite possibly the greatest tool in the world. In, I have, my closet is, has two sides to it. It is for the past several years, those two sides have been labeled. They say office slash travel and speaking slash TV. Mm. Office slash travel is just a t-shirt and jeans. Speaking slash TV is button down a shirt, jacket and jeans, my suits, my vests, my sweaters, all that stuff is in my daughter's closet in her room. Because if I had to look at it every morning, that's what would happen. Mm. So it's the elimination of choice is probably one of the greatest gifts you can give to yourself because it's you don't have to think about it. Right? I know that I am wearing, okay, what's my schedule? Alexa, what's my schedule today? Today you have uh, three calls and you have to pick up your daughter for school. T-shirt and jeans. Yeah. Right? And like, so what's the other day? Well, you're getting on a plane uh, and you're giving a speech at 4 p.m. in Boston. Button down shirt, jacket and jeans. Mm-hmm. It's that simple. Yeah. The less you have to think about, the better you can do. So you were diagnosed in your mid-30s, you said. You're like me, what, 50 now? I'm 51. 50, yeah. yeah. When you were diagnosed, like, tell me about how that came to be and and maybe how you processed uh that that new information or diagnosis i knew i had it i mean it's one of those things you break your leg you see a bone sticking out of your leg you don't need to go to a doctor and say hey did i break my leg it's pretty clear you broke your leg go get it fixed Mm. right so for me i knew that i had adhd it wasn't you know by that point i had done the research on it i knew it was for me it was just a question of figuring out what do i do about it right do i want to be a slave to meds um, how do I work on this? And so, you know, I talked to a doctor and talked to my therapist who I've seen for 20 years plus now. Mm. And, um, it came down to the point that I knew what, <sighs> it's the best way to phrase this. I knew what I had. I knew what I had to do about it. It was just a question of, do I want to start it today or tomorrow? 
Mm-hmm. So for me, it came down to after talking to my doctor, uh, talking to my therapist. Okay, I, I'm, I have a prescription. I'm probably not going to take it every day because I know the things that I need that give me the dopamine I need. Right? I know how to get the stuff I need in my brain. So I'm going to focus on just doing those things. If there's something special, if I can't get it for whatever that day, then I'll take a pill. Hmm. And that's pretty much what it came down to for me. It's interesting now because I'm I'm on medication and have I've found it to be helping, but I also am aware. Um, over the weekend, my my wife and I helped one of her colleagues. She and her kids had moved into um, basically a motel and a very sketchy one at that. And um, she needed some furniture and some clothes, so we brought them over to her. And it was a real sobering moment and, and a real and a, a moment for me to realize just how thankful and grateful I am for the life I have. And what are your thoughts for people who can't afford a therapist and they can't afford medication? They don't have insurance um, who have ADHD or who assume they do. What would you suggest or recommend? I, I mean, I'm a do- you know, obviously not, not a doctor, but I think that one of the best yes. things you can do best thing to do is start to learn and understand yourself, hmm. right? Understand what makes you the way you are. Understand what sets you, gets you into those places, right? What gets you into the, um, the, um, what sets you off, right? Hmm. What puts you in a position where you're now going to lose time and you're not going to be, um, as productive. Hmm. What got you there? You know, look, there's a, a great saying, alcoholics have a great saying called, um, play the tape forward. How are you going to feel in 12 hours after you do the thing you're thinking about doing? How are you going to feel in 12 hours after you have a drink? How are you going to feel in 12 hours if you don't have a drink? Right. And, and I am a huge fan, a huge fan of that because there'll be times when I potentially could do something stupid and I'll ask myself, Hey, how is this going to impact me in you know, X number of hours? How, how am I going to feel about this in the morning? Mm-hmm. Am I going to work out? If this happens, am I going to work out tomorrow morning? If I don't work out tomorrow morning, then what's going to happen, right? right? How, is, how is that going to impact the rest of my day? And so it's, it's that premise of uh, sort of understanding yourself mm. that I think anyone can do. But for me, it's, it's wonderful because it allows me to ask myself, is this a smart idea? Should I be doing this? And look, I'm certainly not perfect. I, you know, I screw up like everyone else. Um, you know, I'm not always on. I'm not as good as I should be all the time. But I do what I can do to... to attempt to mitigate the damage or minimize the damage for anything I might do. And so yeah. a lot of that comes from just knowing yourself. You mentioned uh, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't consider myself an alcoholic. However, I did quit drinking three years ago and haven't had a sip of, of alcohol since. More for a lot of stresses that I was going through at the time, which had me drinking a little too much uh, and I realized, okay, I need to take 30 days off here. And I did that and found some non-alcoholic beers, which were actually incredible that I had no idea existed. And I'm like, holy shit, <laughs> there's really good non-alcoholic beer now. Yeah. Um, and which is, it was a game changer for me. And so, um, my dad passed away a couple of years ago from, from dementia and Alzheimer's. And at that time I realized, okay, um, I need to do everything I can not to get that. Uh, and that included yeah. exercise, meditation, mindfulness. It, it included quitting drinking. It included 
uh, getting a sleep test and realizing, oh, look at that. I have sleep apnea. Sleep apnea My yeah, brain's not apnea. getting oxygen. <laughs> sleep apnea is very common in people with ADD and ADHD. Ah, interesting. I didn't know that. I bring that up because part of me is thinking in this late revelation for me personally, I, I almost feel, and I, I don't feel like I need to apologize for my ADHD, but at the same time, there are people out in the world who I feel like I need to reach out to, to say, Hey, guess what? Remember that time I never followed up with you? Right. <laughs> I'm really sorry, but guess what happened? Or guess what I figured uh, out? I don't know. Like, my, like almost like AA where you go and apologize. To yeah. People, you know? Here's my take on that though. I don't necessarily need to apologize because I don't ever want to look at my ADHD as a weakness or blame my ADHD for the things I do wrong. I'm in control of myself, mm. right? For good or for bad. And so I think for me, a lot of it comes down to understanding, again, understanding how my brain functions, understanding how I work, but you know, learning as much as I can so that if I do make mistakes, I won't make them again. Um, there is an unbelievably fine line between ADHD and addiction, unbelievably mm-hmm. close. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I learned that probably by my late 30s. And I realized, okay, you know what? I don't, I want to try to widen that line. Hmm. I'm going to do what I can because it's, again, we're all three bad decisions in a row away from being a junkie in the streets. I really believe that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very aware of, of how I interact not only with alcohol, but with, um, people, you know, there are people who used to be in my life who I knew that if I hung out with them, alcohol would follow Mm -hmm. or stupid ideas would follow or whatever. And, and, I heard a great quote once, you know, that, that, that a, if you put three pieces of fruit together and one of them gets moldy, um, the mold will spread to the other three pieces of fruit. Uh-huh. And the same is true with the people in your life. So what kind of people do you want to have in your life? And so for me, understanding that, you know, I, I, although I'm not like a follower per se, I do have uh, a very addictive personality. And so for me, I need to know that. I need to be aware of what I can do about that at any given time. So again, that a lot of that comes back to playing the tape forward, as I said. But you know, at the end of the day, I want to know that I'm making right decisions today. They're going to affect me in one hour, two hours, twelve hours, two weeks. Yeah, and that also gets back to what you mentioned about knowing yourself as well, and kind of setting totally. setting those limits or or avoiding uh, problems altogether. For me personally. When I was a kid, you know, I, I smoked pot and things like that, but I always stayed away from hard drugs because I knew it would lead me into bad places. And, and same with drinking. I was a big beer drinker, but, but always kind of avoided uh, hard liquor because my dad was, uh, you know, drank a lot. And, and uh, yeah, so knowing, and also like when I did drink, I would drink too much often, or when I smoked, I would smoke well, like a chimney, have, you know? We don't have a, we don't have a, a moderation button. We have, we have two speeds. We have namaste and I'll cut a bitch and that's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when I mentioned that quote at the very beginning, which was from uh, Ned, uh, Dr. Edward Hallowell. So he wrote the beginning of your book, and he was also the first guest on your podcast. Tell us a little bit about your podcast and your book. And then, of course, I also want to talk about uh, The Boy with the Faster Brain, too. Yeah. So Faster Than Normal, both the book and the podcast, the same name, came out when I realized that my ADHD... So basically, after I sold Help Report around, it took a year or so off, and I sort of trying to figure out why I was, um, you know, why I could do certain things so easily and do other things so horribly. Mm. And, 
you know, I came to the point of came to the realization, like, holy crap, okay, I do have the ability to um, do incredible things, but I need to understand how my uh, brain works, mm-hmm. right? And so figuring that out um, sort of led to help a reporter. Uh, I'm sorry, led to uh, mm. faster than normal. Yeah. Um, you know, and I just wrote this book based on my experiences, you know, with the whole premise of, look, I'm not a doctor, but here's what I know works for me. Um, and then the podcast sort of followed suit of that, uh, the premise that, um, there has to be other people like me, you know, other super weirdos who, uh, seem to do really, really well and Mm -hmm. also seem to have ridiculous, uh, abilities to do incredible stuff and yet, you know, can't keep their marriage going or whatever it is. Mm. And so that led to the book and the podcast. And then from there, uh, this book came out almost six years ago and everyone told me back then to immediately write a, um, to write a children's book. Mm. And because I have ADHD, it took me five years and then I did. Um, and so that's the boy with the faster brain. And the boy with the faster brain is about a 10 year old boy named Peter, who, uh, is just like me, was always getting in trouble and everything. But then he, unlike, unlike me, he gets diagnosed yeah. and he learns about, uh, things like cognitive behavioral therapy and other things like that, that allows him to, use his faster brain to his advantage, live his best life, not get in trouble, things like that. Mm-hmm. And it's adorable. It's a great book. Uh, I love it. And, and, Thank you. and um, yeah, no, it is. Um, it's interesting. Cause it, so I wrote a book in 2013. It's incredible that it was that long ago now called new business networking. And in the book, I actually included you and, and talked about Haro uh, specifically, and how help a reporter out is a great way for, for networking and with journalists and so on. Cool. And so I used that in the book, but I, I wrote that book. It was, a, you know, I had a, a publisher, I had a contract, it was 80,000 words. I wrote that book with undiagnosed ADHD, which I think is probably one of my biggest accomplishments because honestly, <laughs> honestly, like I was ready to quit constantly because I know how to the point that I was talking to other author friends and they were saying, Dave, Dave, it's okay. It's just self doubt. You're going to go through imposter syndrome when you write a a book. It's okay. Everybody goes through it. It's fine. And I know that is part of the process, but I had no idea of this other thing (laughs) that was shaping, just fueling, uh, kicking my self esteem in the ass and just, making me want to quit constantly. And yeah, yeah, it just, it, it was tough. <laughs> yeah, I so, had a, um, I mean, I had a similar thing. I wrote, I wrote all my books on, um, God on, uh, planes or whatever, because it was the only time I could do it. I had, I had a book called zombie loyalists about customer service. And I had a, a year's deadline. I did all the research in the first two weeks and then, um, hmm. uh, did nothing for 11 months. And then my publisher called me. He's like, hey, I have two weeks. How are you doing? I was done. I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I hung up the phone, booked a flight to Tokyo, wrote chapters one through five on the flight out, landed, got a coffee, piece of sushi. Uh, didn't even clear immigration. Got back on the same plane, same seat two hours later, wrote chapters six through 10, flew home with a book, and got, <laughs> and got busted. We got held up by Homeland Security for six hours because I never cleared immigration in Asia. But, um, <laughs> You know, oh my the, the, god! The premise behind it was that that I know how I work. When it's something I really enjoy doing, I can 
hyper focused, and that's that's where the book came from. Dude, getting back to planes again. Your biography yeah. has to have something to do with planes <laughs> in the title. Oh my god, that's wild. That is that is really wild, and and something I'll keep in mind as I uh, start looking at my Southwest points and figuring you know, out how an, far I'll give you I can another, go. Give me another example. <laughs> Yesterday, I had a I, I was in jury duty. I had to sit there most of the day. Mm. Uh, I didn't get called, so I got like a you know I was able to get like oh nothing, but um but I was sitting there and I brought my laptop because I knew that I was going to have at least four hours of doing nothing but sitting in a room. Mm-hmm. So I brought my laptop and I worked pretty much straight through four hours and managed to knock out like 75 emails on my inbox and wrote a couple of uh, emails from my, my mailing list uh, because I was someplace else where I had no other choice but to sit down and do that work. Mm. It really does work. <laughs> I did actually find that helped me too with, with writing my book is changing location. I would go to a library or a coffee yep. shop or uh, a friend's condo and just, yeah, just hammer it out there. Just getting out of the house uh, really helped. Do you have any resent, not, well, maybe resentment, but any, any feelings of life, maybe your childhood or life before you were diagnosed where you look back on things and I don't want to say beat yourself up, but there you go. I just said it on why, like how you could have done something differently. Like, are there, are there regrets? Are there feelings? Like, tell me a little bit about how, how you've handled that. I mean, everybody has regrets naturally. It doesn't matter, but, um, but as it pertains to neurodivergence and ADHD. There's a great line in the movie, Thomas Crown Affair, uh, Pierce Brosnan selling one of his uh, companies. And um, the guy says, so what do you think? Crown, any regrets about the way you played this? He looks at him in his, in his typical Pierce Brosnan handsome way and says, regret, gentlemen, is a waste of time. As is, as is gloating, have you figured out what you're going to tell your board when they realize you paid $34 million more than anyone else was offering? <laughs> and I just – I always go back to that line. Life is so damn short. Mm. I don't regret anything. I think that everything that happened to me as I was growing up benefited me because I like who I am today. My daughter likes who I am today. I'm a good dad. Um, I like to help people. Literally, as I'm sitting here, I get an email from someone who just said, I bought your children's book and I left it for my kid to find. And – Mm. He found it and he said, he came in yesterday and he said, I think I know what my problem is. I think I'm like the boy in the book. I don't want to be bad in class, but sometimes my brain just makes me. I mean, dude, I just helped an eight-year-old understand yeah. himself. And, you know, I, I'm I'm the happiest guy in the world. In the books that I've been reading and studying up on on ADHD and, and the really a big part of the, the purpose of this podcast, too, is to learn more about it and, and to, to help. Yeah, remove the stigma and to help people, especially folks like me who are late diagnosed adults, to get a grasp of it. I've I found personally, I found you know meditation and mindfulness to be incredibly rewarding and helpful. Do you have a practice? Do you do that at all? Sometimes, I mean, I I, I find that the my best place for doing um, uh, sort of getting out of my head again is getting on the bike. I'll get up. At 4 a.m., I'll get on my actual road bike and I'll go outside and I'll start riding. I don't even notice where I'm going. Mm. I just ride. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes I'll wake up, I'll look up and I'll find myself 50 miles away from the city or whatever. Um, yeah. And it's just, you got to figure out what works for you. Yeah. Yeah. Are there questions I didn't ask you or topics that I didn't cover that you feel 
that would be worth chatting about? I think at the end of the day, you want to focus on everyone, how everyone uses their ADHD differently because everyone does. Everyone uses their ADHD differently. And you have to ask yourself, in what way do I use it that benefits me? In what way do you use it? What can I learn from all of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a, a habit I do, maybe because it's also also because I like to hear my own voice. Uh, but I use my AirPods. And when I'm out walking the dog or out driving or whatever, I record audio comments to myself. And, and for some reason, I don't do anything with the recordings, but I just talk to myself. I do a lot of that, too. I do that from uh, I get on my um, when I'm going out for a run or some exercise or whatever. I keep a uh, uh, you know my, my my phone in my hand and I can I can write to that all the time. Yeah, it's interesting because nowadays we're we're in the we're at that point with technology where we're not like the the mad person walking down the street talking to himself. Like now you can just talk exactly. to yourself on your phone and nobody knows the difference. Yep. Whoa, I remember ha, getting ha. in trouble for that as a kid. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Uh, Peter, this has been amazing. How can people get a hold of you, learn more about you, and uh, reach out? Yeah, I'm at Peter Shankman on every social. Uh, I don't use Twitter anymore, but I'm, I'm at Peter Shankman everywhere else, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. Uh, my email is peter at shankman.com, and I am always available to chat. I love talking about this stuff. Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, tell me about, uh, very quickly before we wrap up, about Twitter. Uh, what was your deciding uh, decisions about not using Twitter anymore? I don't, I don't need to be somewhere that is run by a guy who just goes out of his way to be a dick. The guy has a couple hundred billion dollars. He could go out and save the world tomorrow. He could end hunger. He could end homelessness. He could, and he chooses to fight with 15-year-old ankle biters on Twitter. Something's seriously wrong there. Yeah, and empower them, too, by allowing them to, to spread yeah. those ankle bites. Yeah. I see, no, I see no purpose to be there anymore. It breaks my little heart. I I, I found Twitter. I yeah, I mean, you know, I, f- I found Twitter at a at a, a specifically sort of lonely point in my life in '07 when when I found Twitter and started using it. And you know, back then, yourself included, you know, we it was just such a cool space and has just at gotten one, so toxic. At one point, I was the 49th most followed person on Twitter. That's how early I was on the on the, on the game, and, and you know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just done. I don't. I don't need it anymore. It's a waste of time. How do you divide your? Uh, sorry to keep going here. How do you divide your attention uh, for somebody who does spend a fair amount of time w- online with the web, writing, and so forth? Like, how are you able to kind of manage your time? Everything gets put into a calendar, and mm-hmm. I abide by that calendar. Um, I have to. I have to make sure that everything I do uh, sticks to the calendar because otherwise I'll go off in tangents and I won't wind up, you know, I'll wind up doing not the things I'm supposed to be doing. So for me, it's very much about, uh, being aware of the time and being aware of, of, you know, I use, I use, uh, alarms and, 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 and you know, my Apple watch beeps probably 10 times a day to let me know it's time to do something else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting when the web has been, you know, apps and so forth have been, and social media has been really designed to make us addicted. Uh, yeah, it's certainly for, for the folks. end of the day, you need to remember that, that you own your phone, your phone does not own you. <laughs> and we will end there. Great, uh, great reminder for everybody. All right, my friend. Well, thank you again for uh, being on the show and uh, yeah, we'll talk again soon. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening to wise squirrels. It has been amazing to share this with you. Best way to show your support for the show. Leave us a review. Follow the show and share it 
with the people in your life. We drop new episodes every two weeks, so stay tuned for that. Plus, drop by wisequirrels.com or click the link in the podcast description and you'll find a lot of different resources like articles, a, an assessment, a newsletter, lots of good stuff over at wisequirrels.com. So drop by, let me know what you think, and we'll see you next time. Take care.